If you would open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we are continuing in our study through this Gospel this week. Our text will be Mark 1, 21 through 34, although as we begin, I don't want to begin by reading this text. Rather, I want to begin by reading Mark 1, 14 through 15, for it's in this proclamation that we really find the foundation of everything that Jesus will say and do, not just later in the chapter, but throughout his entire earthly ministry. So that being said, if you would stand with me out of reverence for the word of God as we begin our time in Mark chapter 1. Depicting the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we find these words in verses 14 through 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. It's important to note that every single thing that Christ does, every single thing that Christ says after this text, stems from the fact that the kingdom of God is here. Everything he does in his ministry is intended to show the reality of that kingdom and the practical application of that kingdom. This declaration of the inauguration of the kingdom of God is a grand one, and we'll see just how spectacular it is this morning. But oftentimes it's easy in our culture to misunderstand just how grand of a declaration this is. For we live in a world that, let's face it, is saturated with countless advertisements of products and people that swear to you that they will change your life if you simply give them a moment. We see countless advertisements for mysterious new oils that can cure all diseases. Or a new diet plan that can revolutionize your ability to think clearly. There are countless self-help 90-day plans that promise you to make you fit, to make you financially successful, to give you overall fulfillment in every relationship. There are an endless list of products and people that are here to declare, the kingdom's here. Look to us and you too will find a new way to truly live. In that culture, it's easy to hear these words of Jesus and to interpret it as if Jesus is offering a a new way to find fulfillment or a new way to to be happy, to to be successful. And indeed, that's how so many people treat Christianity today. It's just one of many options to make us happy. But we must understand that when Jesus makes this declaration, and as he begins his public ministry in Mark 1.21, He's not offering you a new way to live. He's not saying, hey, try me out. I I promise that, that I'll make you happy. I promise it'll be worth it. Rather, Jesus is saying, no, the rules really have changed. The kingdom of God, the reign of God has officially begun. I am the king, and you will either repent and believe or be crushed in my wrath. He's not presenting himself as a new product. He is presenting himself fully as the king of all creation. And it is no surprise then that as we get into his ministry, that he leaves his audiences utterly shocked by everything he does and says. As we look to the passage today, Mark 1, 21 through, 20, through 34, we will see some of that amazement. We will see the unique, the unique authority of the king of God's kingdom. We will see it manifested both in Jesus' supreme speech as well as in his healing touch and in both pictures, things that seemingly would contradict each other. We are given the beginnings of 
of a greater understanding of just how significant, just how unique this king is. And my hope, my prayer for all of us, is that we might walk away this morning not simply being amazed by some trick that Jesus can proclaim, but that we might be awestruck by his glory, by his holiness, and that we might be equally awestruck by his intimate relationship that he offers all of his people. With that being said, though, we must first examine both elements of his authority, beginning in verse 21. Before we read that, let me open us up in prayer, and we will start exploring this authority of Christ. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, already humbled by the words that we have sung to you, humbled by the reminder of your holiness, humbled by a reminder of your, of your son's death, burial, and resurrection, humbled by a reminder that you And you alone are God. But even as we sing those words, it is easy for them to become just some abstract concept that we do not truly comprehend, that does not leave us standing in awe as it ought to, God. And so as we open up the Gospel of Mark, Lord, we pray that you might reinstate that proper sense of awe and wonder, the majesty that is you, that is the majesty that is your son, Jesus. Might we be thunderstruck by the words of Christ, by the ministry of Christ. Might we see him not simply as a product, but as the king of all creation. And might we respond properly with repentance, with belief, with complete submission, God. Remove all distractions from our minds, from our hearts, God. Cause us to be entirely focused upon you, Holy Spirit, be at work. And the hearts of your people cause us to be increasingly in awe of the Son, be at work in the hearts of unbelievers here, God. Crush their pride, wake them from their spiritual slumber, cause them to see the king for the first time and cause them to believe in him. Might all this be to your glory. Might all this be in proper recognition of the holiness and grandeur of Jesus Christ, the king. It is in his name we pray these things. Amen. As I mentioned, verses 21 through 34 speak of of two different pictures of Christ's unique authority. The first picture revolves around Jesus' supreme speech and the authority his words contain. You see two activities of Christ in our passage that speak to that reality, verses 21 through 28. There, we read these words of Mark. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him, And they were all amazed so that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In these verses we see two activities of Jesus. First, he preaches the word. And second, he commands an unclean spirit to leave a man in the congregation. If you are like me, you're probably a little more initially excited by that second activity, right? We get excited and we're amazed to think, oh, wow, Jesus drove out a demon. But it's important to note that in the context of Mark and really throughout all of Jesus' ministry, that that first activity, the the act of preaching, 
is just as incredible and just as important, for it takes up a great portion of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is routinely, regularly preaching and teaching the crowds. It was an essential part of, of his earthly time. And so it ought to in no way surprise us to read that this is the first activity that Mark describes when summarizing Jesus' teaching. Speaking to that activity in verse 21 and 22, Mark says, Again, they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not of the scribes. At first glance, this activity of Christ strikes us probably as a bit mundane, a bit common. Um, No doubt in, in this context, this was nothing brand new to the audiences. This was not the first time Jesus would have taught. It certainly wasn't odd for him to go into a synagogue. It certainly was far from strange for local Jews to gather in a synagogue to hear the word being taught, for this is something they did on a a weekly basis on the Sabbath. And in fact, we, we can assume that these crowds had probably heard countless messages, countless sermons before Christ that detailed the law of God and that even spoke of his grand plan throughout the Old Testament. And so when Jesus enters into the synagogue and begins to preach... He is doing something that has been done countless times before. We are not given the specific content of Christ's teaching, although we can assume it falls in line with the proclamation we read earlier in verse 15. We can assume that Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, and we can also assume that he probably used some Old Testament text and explained it as as a means of being fulfilled. There was no grand show here, no no languages spoken that were brand new to the people, no miraculous signs given, just words spoken, preaching a pretty simple, pretty straightforward message. And yet as familiar as this activity would have been to these people, we see there's something different here. There's something truly different incredible in that idea that Jesus can simply speak and it can leave these people, as Mark says, amazed. They are thunderstruck. They are baffled by what they are hearing. For even though they've heard something along these lines before, there's something different about Christ. There's something unique about how he speaks, specifically the authority with which he speaks. This response of amazement is by no means unique to Mark 1, 22. We see the same response later on in Mark chapter 1. And in fact, throughout all of the gospel of Mark, people who, who witness Christ's teaching, individuals who witness Christ performing miracles, are regularly awestruck. They can't comprehend what they hear, what they see, whether it is Jesus calming a sea or Jesus driving out a demon, as we'll see later, or, or Jesus teaching one of his many difficult sayings. Time and time again, we find in the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels that when Jesus speaks, when Jesus acts, the crowds are shocked. They are at times terrified because they can't quite comprehend what it is that's happening before them. Namely, in the, the context of Mark 1, They can't understand this newfound authority that they've never heard before. Mark, again, doesn't describe exactly what about Jesus' teaching struck them as so authoritative, but he does say that it's specifically in reference to what they typically hear. That is, it's authoritative compared to the typical teachings from the scribes. 
And again, we do not know the exact content here, but what most commentators say is, is the scribes would base all of their teaching on prior scribes, prior rabbis. And so a, a scribe would get up in a synagogue on a Sabbath, he would read a passage from the law, and then he would begin quoting a number of rabbis, a number of former teachers, and say, this is what so-and-so says, this is what so-and-so says. And in essence, the scribes were not placing themselves in a unique position of authority, they were just the next person in that long line of teachers. That's the type of teaching that people were used to. But when Jesus got up to speak, he was doing something categorically different. We are given a taste of that categorical difference in passages like Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps those of you who are here during our series through that will remember words of Jesus from that sermon. But in the Sermon on the Mount, you have examples like this concerning Jesus' authority. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following, there Jesus says, You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. In a similar way, later on in verse 27 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard of it, it was said. Do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with uh, with her in his heart. Time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems that when Jesus spoke, he didn't just quote a number of other rabbis. He quoted the law and said, here's what this really means. You've heard it said by other rabbis, this means this, but here's the true heart of the matter. And while we cannot be certain that that's the exact pattern of Christ's teaching here in Mark, we can assume that there was, a, there was an element to this that struck the people with such amazement. So that while they had heard these texts before, Jesus spoke and his mere words was, was enough to leave them shell-shocked. Enough to leave them in silence. And while we cannot understand all the details there, we can imagine just how incredible of, of a setting that must have been to hear the Son of God preach. To hear God himself proclaim the word of God. What, a, what an opportunity. And yet as glorious and as authoritative as that preaching was, we see it's just the first example of Jesus' supreme speech here. For in the midst of their stunned silence, we have the second activity where Jesus drives out a demon. For while he preaches, we read these words in Mark 1, picking it up in verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. In the midst of their preaching, this fascinating and truly awe-inspiring event happens where a man in their presence is, is possessed by an unclean spirit, a demon. It is assumed that he has been there this whole time, and some commentators agree that he's probably been there for weeks. This is someone that these people probably know is suffering tremendously. But as this demon hears the preaching of the Son of God, he cannot help but cry out against him. And in essence, he says, leave us alone, Jesus. We have no business together. And as he continues to speak, he in essence says, I know why you're here. You mean for our destruction, and I know why you destroy us. Because you are the Son of God. 
What an incredible display. The language here ought to have been enough to, to leave that audience again even more amazed by what was happening for this language of a divine one of God is a language that, a, that would have clearly spoken to Christ's divinity. When you read through the prophet Isaiah, you read that same sort of language time and time again, for there the prophet regularly calls God the Holy One of Israel. To describe anyone as the Holy One of God, the Holy One of such and such, speaks to his divinity. In the Gospel of Mark, it is an interchangeable term with the idea of of Christ being the Son of God. This is God incarnate. The demon says the reason why he's able to do this, folks, is because he's God. That's why he speaks with such authority. It's incredible to consider that the demon would be willing and able to to speak such truth. And and you can only imagine the level of shock that that would have filled that room. And yet as we continue to read the account, what is perhaps even more surprising is that as Jesus responds, the crowd isn't amazed by what the demon says. They don't leave the sanctuary saying, oh my goodness, did did you hear him call call Jesus son of God or or the holy one of, of, of God? What does that mean? What leaves them shocked is, again, the manner with which Jesus drives the demon out. For in response to the demon crying out loudly, Jesus simply turns to him. And he says, leave him. Be silent. And the demon leaves. And he is silent. If this were some modern day movie uh, trying to depict a, a demonic possession and the exercising of a demon, there would be some grand fight here, wouldn't there? We imagine Jesus would give some great incantation. He would offer some mystical combination of words. He would sweat. He would toil. He would work with all of his might. And in the end, he would finally win. But there's no fight. There's no struggle Jesus isn't threatened by this demon. He's able, basically, mid-sentence in a sermon, to look at the demon and say, hush, get out. And the demon gets out. Why? Because Jesus speaks as the king of creation. He speaks as the king of God's kingdom. And so just with a simple spoken word, Jesus is able to do whatever he pleases. Now a quick word regarding Jesus' command to the demon. For some might be confused why he would command this demon to be quiet, to stop speaking such, such high praise, not praise, but realities of Christ. This is a, a command that Jesus gives multiple times, even later in chapter 1. And there's some debate as to why Jesus wouldn't want a demon speaking who he truly is. Some people say, well, Jesus is trying to avoid looking like a political revolutionary. He's trying to avoid the spotlight for the Roman Empire. Others say, well, he's trying to avoid being attacked by Jewish leaders. For, for if, if he said he was the Son of God, certainly that would bring about his crucifixion maybe a bit sooner than planned. Regardless of, of why Jesus does this, ultimately, the fact remains, as most agree, that Jesus commands him to be silent because Jesus doesn't need this demon to do his work for him. Jesus isn't dependent upon some demon to prove he's the Son of God. He's not dependent on anything in creation to prove what he's saying. Jesus has already said he's the king. He's already declared the kingdom is here. And so he needs no help from anyone or anything else. And so he simply speaks under complete control and drives the demon out. And as we read in verse 27 and 28 describing the crowd, Mark again says they were all amazed. So they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. The people in that synagogue had no concept of what was happening. The people in that synagogue had no doubt gathered in that synagogue many times before. And as we can tell from later passages, Capernaum by no means was spiritually transformed that day. For the vast majority of these people, it seems, remained unbelievers. They're not converted here. So it's clear they didn't have a a full grasp of what was happening, but what they could tell is that they had never witnessed anything like this. What they knew for certain is that they'd never heard anyone speak with such authority. What they could not understand is that this language of Christ, as shocking as it was, as new as it was, was ultimately nothing new in Scripture. For Jesus here is simply displaying the same power of speech that God has always put on display throughout Scripture. By commanding the demon to exit and, and succeeding in having the demon exit, by speaking the law perfectly, Jesus was simply an echo of the many truths and many examples were given of this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. For you simply think of the story of creation. Again, in ancient Near East, the typical story of creation is gods must have worked, uh, to- they must have toiled and worked to create things. There were great wars, great battles to be fought, and it was only after those gods fought and worked and sweat and spilled blood that creation could come into existence. But that's not how creation comes into existence. No, the Bible says there's no fight. God didn't struggle, he spoke. And there's the earth. He spoke, there's animals. He spoke and there's the ocean. He speaks and because he's the king of creation, nothing can resist him. Nothing can fight. The law of God is perfect. The spoken of word of God is is incomprehensible in its power. And so when Jesus speaks, he is simply reflecting that same power. He is a king who has no peer like him. And he demonstrates this in his mere speech. And as he does, he leaves the audience Stunned, again, not by what he accomplishes, but because of how he accomplishes it. For there's no fight, there's no incantation, there's just the word of God being spoken in their presence. And just like that, the kingdom of God is is beginning to be seen by these people. They just don't know it yet. And so they they leave there astonished, amazed, no doubt some trembling at the word that is spoken because while they cannot fully understand it they have just laid eyes on the incarnate son of god they have stood in the presence of god and heard god speak to them this is something at times i think we oftentimes fail to appreciate when we approach a gospel text like this Oftentimes we become so familiar with the teachings of Christ in passages like the Sermon on the Mount or we become so familiar with miracles of Christ as we will see here shortly that we can read them and walk away unchanged as if, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus did that. But we forget just how baffling these activities were. We forget how how powerful his spoken word was. Those of us who have grown accustomed to these texts ought to learn an important lesson then by reading of this crowd's amazement because we too ought to always stand in amazement at the word of God. For when even we read this text today, we're reading the word of God that is the power to bring creation to existence, that is the power to drive a demon out of an individual, that is the power to make our hearts new and bring us new life. That's the word of Christ. That is the supremacy of his speech. 
What an awe-inspiring truth. And yet as we continue on in the text, we see that as only one facet of Christ's authority. For to a certain extent, as, as transcendent, as unknowable as that authority is, that's what we expect from a king. We expect a king to come out, drive out his opponents, cut down anyone that's against him, and rule with an iron fist. That's how a, a human ruler would do it. But as we move on, we see there's something far more special, far more unique, far more awe-inspiring about the authority of Christ. For it doesn't just end with Jesus' supreme speech. It continues to be manifested in Jesus' healing touch. We pick this back up in verse 29 of Mark 1, reading through verse 34. There Mark reads, And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. As the story continues, Mark says, Jesus and his disciples leave the synagogue and we can only imagine the excitement that must have characterized their feeling there. And these disciples alongside Jesus walk to the near town of Bethsaida and and this is where Simon Peter lives. It appears they're going to his house there to enjoy a little bit of rest, no doubt discuss the events of that day. You can only imagine the number of questions the disciples must have had. But as they enter into this basic familiar setting, where they had simply assumed they would discuss and ask a few questions with Jesus, they find a somewhat different scene. For they find, according to Mark, the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. And while we do not know exactly what is wrong with this mother-in-law, we know that she is sick with fever, and it is significant enough to to debilitate her, to cause her to, to be lying down and be unable to serve a meal, be unable to serve this Christ figure and his companions. So whether or not this is threatening her very life we cannot know but we know it is of some seriousness and so in light of that disease in light of of this new problem that's be presented we read that his disciples in essence present this mother-in-law to jesus well we can assume they're probably asking for some sort of healing they're perhaps seeing if if jesus can do anything about their mother-in-law who is lying ill and as they do, we come to this next activity of Christ, in which he doesn't simply speak, but, but he heals. This is the activity of Christ. He heals Peter's, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He heals the masses that appear at the doors in the late hours of the night and continue to come hour after hour after hour. This activity of healing is significant in light of Old Testament prophecy. By itself, the fact that Jesus heals many should have spoken volumes to his character and to his identity. For if you read through a number of Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 35, you see that there were many predictions regarding the ability to heal for the Messiah. In Isaiah, uh, you can read promises regarding uh, this, this coming king. In verses four, th- 4 and following of Isaiah 35, we read this prophecy. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. 
The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Time and time again in passages like Isaiah 35, prophecies of the coming Messiah speak of this healing, and for good reason, for the Messiah is supposed to reverse the effects of the fall. And so since the fall introduced sickness, then the Messiah must reverse that sickness. He must bring healing. And so the mere activity, the mere action of Christ here ought to be enough to astonish us. For by healing individuals, he clearly is speaking to his identity uh, as the Messiah. But again, in the context of Mark, it's not just the fact that Jesus heals that leaves us astonished. That's not the main point of this text. Rather, what What is truly astonishing about the way that Jesus Christ heals is in the use of this personal touch. It's in this personal interaction that he has both with the mother-in-law and then the masses that come for hours on end. For again, consider how you might try to to present yourself as the king. Consider more, more, I don't know, flashy ways that Jesus could have manifested his power. Think, for instance, of of how so many so-called faith healers heal so many people still today. You can think of old videos of Benny Hinn and, and all these videos. What do the faith healers do? They put on a grand show, don't they? They wave their hands around and they yell at the people. And the people fly back and fall to the ground. And people say, that's power. Wow, that's incredible. That's child's play. That's blasphemy, really. That's pathetic. When Jesus Christ comes and heals, he doesn't say, okay, gather all the important people around. I'm going to put on a show. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? My mother-in-law just, she really isn't that significant. Let's get a sick king in here. Then I'll really prove it. Now, Jesus comes in, and initially, with respect to Peter's insignificant, relatively unimportant mother-in-law, that plays no significant role in society, Jesus simply heals her by holding her hand, by graciously and compassionately walking up to this woman he has never met and taking her by the hand and, and lifting her up out of her bed. And we're told that with that touch, Jesus heals her. Similarly, later in the passage, while it doesn't describe the touch of Christ, it speaks of this this shocking intimacy that Jesus shares. For he, he time and time again interacts with him on an incredibly personal level. And this, this personal touch is not simply seen here in Mark 1, it is found throughout the gospel. And you can see examples like this in, in Mark chapter 9. Verses 25 through 27, perhaps even more significantly later on in Mark chapter 1. We read that Jesus heals a leper by touching him. Someone who is unclean, someone who had been viewed as as dangerous to touch. Jesus touches and he heals them. Jesus does similar things to countless other individuals who are sick, who are unclean. And one of my personal favorite passages in all of Mark, in which Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, we read... A similar account in Mark chapter 5, if you would turn over to Mark 5. We'll get to this passage in the coming months, but it, it serves to show us again just the intimacy that Jesus demonstrated with people as he healed them. Mark chapter 5, Jesus coming into this, event, to this 
setting where, where a girl is dead. And we read these words starting in verse 39. Entering in, Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. The image given in these passages is not the imagery of some transcendent, distant king ruling with an iron fist. The images here are of a loving parent tenderly caring for his child. In this instance in Mark chapter 5, the language here is the language of a father waking his daughter up from a nap and saying, rise up, little girl. And he raises her to life. Time and time again, this son of God who just previously in Mark 1 showed and displayed his power by commanding the demons to leave has already showed and displayed his power in a position of great authority as a preacher, as a scribe. He now presents himself as this tender healer, as one who is willing to spend hours on end meeting with insignificant, unimportant people so that he can lay a hand on them to heal them to bring them new life. He does this not demanding that they first be converted. It's interesting to note. He heals multitudes who seemingly, and seemingly none of them believe in him. They, they benefit from him and then they leave. And so he's not after a following here. He simply is doing this again out of care and concern for his creation of a demonstration that he's the king. Again, in this demonstration, we have something that must have must have been unbelievable to the people to witness. For on one hand, here is this distant, transcendent king that causes them to tremble, but there is something about them, them, them that draws them in. They cannot help but approach this almighty individual. And as they approach him, they experience not a rebuke, but a loving word and a, a tender touch. It was something that must have felt incredibly foreign to them, but yet again, if they could only have thought through the Old Testament scripture, they would have understood and remembered, this is nothing new. This is the fall in reverse. For throughout Old Testament scripture, we see that same shockingly intimate nature of the way God tenderly cares for his people. We see it frequently in Old Testament prophets where where God compares his love for Israel as a as a husband's love for his wife. We see it as far back in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 through 2. In that famous account, of course, we read of how how God speaks everything into existence. He, He speaks into existence so many things, but when it comes to the creation of man, there's something far more intimate spoken of there. For as Genesis depicts the account of that creation, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, we read this account. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. There's something distinct, something unique about the way God interacts with his people. He loves them. He shapes them. He cares for them. He knows them exhaustively. 
David praises God for that intimate knowledge in Psalm 139 when he describes how how in the womb God knit him together. He knows his thoughts completely. He loves and he cares for them, not as some distant God, but, but as a loving father cares for his child. There's something unfathomable about that love, about that care. There's something ab- about that care that, that is found nowhere else, and yet it is that level of care that Jesus Christ himself exemplifies. And as he does so again, he presents himself as the absolute authoritative king of all creation. For with just a word, he is able to drive a demon out. With just a word, he's able to leave a crowd shell-shocked by a sermon. With just a word later on, he's able to still a sea. With just a word, he's able to do whatever he pleases. And with just a touch, he's able to end lifelong disease. With With just a touch, he's able to raise the dead to life. With just a touch, he's able to do whatever he pleases. And the reason for this? Because he's the king of creation. The reason for this? Because the kingdom of God is here. I am the king. And either you can repent and believe and fall in line and benefit from my love, or you will simply be crushed under the wrath of God. Time and time again in the ministry of Christ, we see amazingly that there is no fight. There is no grand fight on display. There is no struggle of Christ. There is simply time and time again absolute and unapproachable authority. Time and time again the reality is presented that this is the king of creation. That he can do whatever he pleases. That he is the one that deserves to be worshipped. And so the question isn't necessarily who is this man. For it is presented clearly time and time again. The question we have to ask is what is your response to him? What's our response? Do we hold out for more evidence? Do we say well maybe there's another religious figure out there that can make me happy. Or or maybe I don't need Jesus. Are we foolish enough to believe that we can somehow resist his rule? Tragically, yes. But by the grace of God, might we all respond appropriately. First and foremost, with a right reverence, a right trembling before the almighty spoken word of Christ. But might our trembling not stop there? Might it drive us forward as we fall at his feet? Understanding that he is the king and understanding it is only by his touch, it is only by his authority that we can be made new again. Praise God for the fact that he comes not with an iron fist, but he comes offering us life through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we close this morning, as we consider all these things, there's so much that we could say, but but for unbelievers... The calling to you is is be amazed. Truly be astonished by what the Bible claims of Christ. There are an endless list of religions that you can study in which people speak of how how great so-and-so spoke or how great of a leader he was or how great of a revolution he inspired. There are countless products that can promise you good health, countless choices you can make that promise you fulfillment, but only in Christianity do we offer the king of all creation. Only in Christianity do we have true life offered to you. 
And so, unbeliever, I beg you, be amazed, and as Jesus commands, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. For apart from that belief, apart from that repentance, you stand under the judgment of an almighty king. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us perhaps for the first time in a while truly sit back in awe and wonder and behold our king. Let us not sing words that declare his holiness, declare his unique authority with with apathy, but let us declare it with great passion and great praise for we stand before the almighty son of God. And so let us rightly be amazed by that. Let us rightly repent of our sins daily, but let us, as we consider this authority of God, also be comforted. For the king that speaks creation to existence is the same king who touches you and who gives you life. Let us be comforted and be confident for the same king who had the authority to be raised from the dead is the same king that guarantees you eternal life, and so we take confidence knowing there's no one that can overcome that promise. There's no one that can overcome his reign. We are confident because if we believe in Christ, we believe in the only true son of God and we will see him again. We will live eternally in God's kingdom and we will eternally enjoy the precious and intimate love of our savior, the king of all creation.